Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Powered People Podcast. I'm Michelle Kane, your co-host and founder of World of Vegan. And I'm Tony Okamoto, your co-host and founder of Plant Based on a Budget and Food Sharing Vegan. On this show, we talk with plant-powered people from all around the world about various aspects of plant-based living because we want to empower you to learn and explore and evolve in a kind, sustainable, and healthy direction, all while eating the most delicious food and having a ton of fun. Today, we will be chatting with our friend Hannah Shaw, who is a kitten rescuer, humane educator, and New York Times bestselling author who has dedicated her whole life to finding innovative ways to protect animals. Her project, Kitten Lady, strives to create global change in the way we perceive and treat the tiniest and most vulnerable felines. Hannah is also the founder of Orphan Kitten Club, a nonprofit organization which provides life-saving programs, including a neonatal kitten nursery, a TNR program, and the world's first grant program specifically funding innovation in kitten welfare. Since 2019, her nonprofit has provided more than $1 million in funding to shelters and rescues to further the cause of neonatal kitten welfare. She's also been featured as an expert on Animal Planet, which is pretty cool. And she's received several awards for her advocacy work, including a Cat Advocate of the Year Award from the ASVCA. She's grown a community of over 1 million Instagram followers who are eagerly awaiting her daily adorable rescued kitten photos and educational videos. And she's just an incredible example of what one person can do. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Organifi and Caraway. Organifi creates plant-based whole food blends that are carefully combined to offer your body nourishment to create optimal health. They offer protein powders that are tasty and smooth, as well as organic superfood blends that make it easy to get in more plant-powered nutrition, vitamins, antioxidants, and superfoods, even when your life gets super busy. They have several powder blends, including a green juice packed with veggies, a red juice packed with dried fruits and superfoods, as well as other science-backed health blends. Each superfood blend is super easy to use and very, very tasty. You've got to give it a try. Just head over to Organifi.com slash plant power. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash plant power and use the code plant power for 20% off of your entire order. Next up, thank you to Caraway. We're big, big fans of Caraway. So it's really exciting to have them as our podcast sponsor all season long. Most people know Caraway for their internet famous cookware and bakeware, but they also have newly launched food storage sets that are not surprisingly super beautiful, thoughtfully and functionally designed, and they make spring cleaning your fridge and pantry really super satisfying. If you want to give your kitchen a little makeover, Caraway's eco-friendly, non-stick and non-toxic pots and pans and baking sheets and all of their products are an investment that you'll be loving every time you step in your kitchen to cook. If you'd like to check them out, we have a special code that you can use to save on their full suite of products right now at carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen. That's where you you can take advantage of this limited time offer for 10% off your next purchase. This deal is exclusive to our listeners of the Plant Powered People podcast. So again, you can visit carawayhome.com slash plantpoweredkitchen or use the code plantpoweredkitchen at checkout to explore Caraway, non-toxic cookware made modern. And now onto the show. 
Hi, Hannah. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. We are so excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you. Okay. So I, deep in my heart, am a cat person. I have a dog and that happened kind of out of the blue because of the pandemic. I didn't expect to have any more dependents ever, period, because it's a huge responsibility, especially if you travel a lot and it's hard to make decisions now and think about what your life is going to be like in 10 years or if you have a cat in 18 years, maybe. And so I have a dog, but in my heart, I still feel like the biggest cat lover. I had a cat for 10 years and I loved him dearly. His name was Yosha. And so I'm extra, extra excited to talk to you all about cats because I love them so much and they're so cute. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I I am an animal person. So I love cats, dogs, pigs, ducks, goats, any of them. But of course, I mostly work with cats and kittens. I understand that. I do love all animals, although I worked at an animal sanctuary and I have been pretty much my whole career and life as a vegan a little bit intimidated by big pigs. (laughs) And I remember when I was working at Animal Place, uh, I was talking to my manager and I was like, you know, I fed the pigs and it was a little bit intense. They're about a thousand pounds and I I fed them and they were very hungry. And so I was explaining how I felt and she was like, okay, let's go and get you more familiar with them. And so I spent some time and one pig, his name was Ben, decided he just didn't really like me. <laughs> and he was like giving me the mean eyes. And uh, and so I have met pigs I like, but I'm still like, the, that's the one animal I'm like, uh-oh. Oh, I don't know. So interesting to hear. Pigs are really like one of my heart animals. I've raised like over a thousand neonatal kittens, but I've, I've now fostered, I'm on pigs 30 and 31. So I'm I'm a pig lady now. And I, I do foster pigs in addition to my other work that I do. And it's, it is funny you say that about their size because most of the animals I work with are like, you know, a hundred (laughs) grams, you know, they're like literally fit in the palm of your hand, these little neonatal kittens. But now I also foster, you know, sometimes adult pigs. We, I have a mama pig right now that I'm fostering. And yeah, it's a totally different thing when you're, you're working with an animal who's larger than you. But I just adore them. I'm so passionate about pigs. I want to come play so badly. Pigs are like my (laughs) spirit animal. I was that kid that growing up at all my birthdays when I was younger, everyone would give me pig things because they knew I was the pig person. Oh. I love them so much. And my husband, when I met him, I always gave him two stipulations for like, if we get married and are together forever, one or one of them was I'm going to be living in California and not Ohio. And the other one was (laughs) one day I will be adopting a pig. (laughs) Uh, Well, they're great. And I mean, I love helping people kind of get acquainted with them. We have a lot of people come visit who have never met a pig and they meet them and they can't believe how intelligent and communicative they are and how unique each of their personalities is. I mean, they are really, it's each pig, getting to know a pig is like getting to know a person. They're all different. They all are, you know, have something amazing to offer in your connection with them. And I just adore them. And Pigs are particularly important for me because it was my first 
time meeting a pig was my first time deciding not to eat meat. So it's kind of full circle for me that I rescue pigs now because I was just a little kid when I made that decision and it was because of a, a pig. I want to hear more about that. And I will say before we we jump into your story that despite my intimidation, I do really love them. And especially, <laughs> especially looking into their eyes, I feel like their eyes are very human like to me. Sure. So when I look into their eyes, I see them as an individual and I understand their intelligence and unique personalities. So I do really like pigs. I just like, <laughs> oh, hey, from over here, how are you? <laughs> That's okay. Yeah. We all have those animals where we're like, I really like you and I'd like to watch you from over here. <laughs> yeah. I just like, I, I get right up in their bellies. You know, I, I kiss their snouts. I love them dearly. Oh, but, but, you know, it, it takes time to get comfortable with an animal. Okay, so we know now a little bit about what inspired you to make the decision to become vegan. But can you tell us a little bit before that, what was your life like? Did you have parents who were vegetarian leaning or was your upbringing more standard American diet? What was that like? And then can you also tell us a little bit more about your journey to that moment when you met a pig and decided to become vegan? Sure. So yeah, I grew up with a very standard American diet and never thought much about it. I mean, I love, I grew up in New York City. I loved animals, but the only animals I ever saw were like pigeons and squirrels, but I loved them and I still do. But I didn't have um, even animals growing up. So I didn't have that connection to them. And then when I was 12, I went to a state fair for the first time at that state fair, there was a mama pig with babies. And I was so excited. I had never met a pig before. And I walked over and she was in this tiny little cramped area. And she took a step back and she actually stepped on one of her piglets like hooves. And the piglet squealed, was hurt. And I got very upset by that. And I went to find an adult, which was seemed like the right thing to do. And I said, I think one of the piglets might be hurt. And the adult laughed at me and said, well, you eat bacon, don't you? And I remember I had never made that connection prior to that. And it was really, I mean, I think a very callous thing to say to a child, but honestly, it was an incredibly eye-opening thing for me because, yeah, I mean, I, I did eat, I did eat pigs. And here I was upset about a pig having squealed out in pain and, I don't know. It just, it didn't make sense to me. That connection just, I had never made. And I walked out and at that same state fair, saw a whole pig roasting on a spit. And that was all I needed to see. And I decided that day I am not eating pigs anymore. But for some reason, I only made the connection for pigs that day. I decided I was not eating pigs anymore. And then actually uh, over the next year, made that connection to the rest of the animals that I was eating and started being vegetarian, you know, over the course of that year. So I was vegetarian, you know, around the age of 12. And I thought that was, I mean, I really like very much self-identified as an animal lover by that point. I was super passionate about it, but it was not until I was 15 that I went to a show. I went to like a festival where there were a lot of bands playing 
And there was a table there that was like an animal advocacy organization. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. I'm going to go talk to them. And I walked up and I said, oh, I'm vegetarian. And the person behind the table said, that's cool. Why aren't you vegan? <laughs> and I just, had I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know anyone who was even vegetarian. Much I was already like the the weirdo of my my friends and family, and I didn't know anything about that. But this person handed me a booklet about uh, veganism, and it went particularly into the dairy industry and the egg industry. And I remember sitting on the curb reading this booklet and crying because. I thought that I knew everything and I thought I was doing everything I could. And still to this day, my perspective is that the dairy industry is the most horrific industry on earth. I mean, it, I just didn't know anything about it. Nobody taught me those things and nobody talks about that stuff. So literally, I just read this booklet and I decided right then and there, I cannot support these industries anymore. And I'm 35 now. So that was 20 years ago. And I can tell you a lot has changed in the last 20 years with regard to the availability of vegan food and my strengths as a cook or you know the availability of vegan restaurants. But what has not changed is the passion that I have for that. You know, It's been 20 years. I remember everybody in my life saying, yeah, we'll see how long this lasts. And you know, it's kind of funny because 20 years later, I feel just as passionately, except now I'm like fostering mom pigs and babies and I'm able to make a difference for them, not just by not eating them, but by actually, you know, giving them a safe place to be. So that's like the short version, uh, but I'm happy to expand on any of that. <laughs> well, that's, that's so awesome. And it's a quite young age to make this lifestyle change. A lot of people who are listening to our podcast are, are much older and are self-sufficient and can buy their own groceries. But you at the young age of 12, I imagine you weren't the one with the buying power in the home and who was making meals for yourself, or maybe you were. So what was that experience like? Were your parents on board? Were they supportive? And let's hear that first. Nobody in my family understood why I wanted to do that. And I will tell you, as a teenager, I subsisted off of uh, a lot of like pasta with tomato sauce and like bagels with like hummus on them. I mean, both of which are delicious things, but I didn't have a lot of variety in my diet um, until I started learning how to cook on my own. Um, and I became like pretty independent at a very young age and learned how to do a lot of that. And once I started getting involved in animal activism and meeting other people who had a similar lifestyle and similar ethics to me that I was able to start really learning about where can I get the food that I want to eat and how do you prepare tofu and all of that stuff that I didn't know growing up. So I would say by the time I was 16, 17, I was already really interested in, in, cooking and baking and figuring out how to make a lot of the stuff that we take for granted now, I think, you know, um, it's so funny to me now when people are like, how can you be vegan? And I'm like, I feel like I'm so old. I'm like, Oh, come on. 20 years ago, it was hard to find like soy milk at the grocery store. 
And now it's like, which flavor of vegan cupcake do you want from the baked goods section? It's like, wow, so different than it used to be. But I don't know. I mean, I definitely did not have a lot of variety in in my diet until I was at a point where I, I had those connections in my life and had the independence to be able to, you know, have a job and and buy the types of things that uh, I wanted. But man, I was very, very passionate about cooking and baking as soon as I started to learn how to prepare things in a delicious way and and learn really that like you can have a delicious diet and be vegan. Um, You know, that was really important to me because I am a foodie. And of course, now (laughs) it's a lot easier than it was back then. (laughs) Your story reminds me of Michelle's in many ways. She was also really young when she made the connection and it was also something that was really in her face. And in her case, I think it was a lamb. Michelle, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it a lamb? Yeah, I watched some movie about a lamb whose mom passed away in the movie and I would just watch this movie again and again and just cry. (laughs) And then for dinner, my mom made lamb and she made some offhanded comment about how oh, that's interesting that we're eating lamb tonight. And I was like, what? And I was eight. So like, obviously, somehow I knew that this was the animal, but really I had not made the connection. And it's so crazy how like the most interesting things cause young people to just actually make that connection. And I think most people are like, are vegan at heart. No one wants to be eating animals or causing harm to animals. And it just takes sort of the stars to align to get the moment in front of you at a time where you're receptive and open to seeing it that, whoa, this is what we're actually eating. And we really don't need to be. Yeah. You know, I I really like what you said about the moment where you're open and receptive, because that is so important. And something I will say has changed for me is I used to be like, as a teenager, I was a, I was a nightmare. Like I was a really aggressive vegan, (laughs) like very in your face, uh, very, I would say even like judgmental. I think I was, you know, underneath anger is always, I think, a lot of other emotions like sadness. I think I felt really sad and powerless about what I was learning about animals. And so that kind of turned into anger and judgment. And I was much more aggressive in my activism back then. Now I see that, you know, it really is what you're saying about meeting people at that moment where they are open and receptive. And I'll tell you, since I've been fostering pigs, I just started fostering pigs three years ago. And I have had so many people who have told me that they have made that transition to veganism because of just watching these stories of piglets growing up and their personalities. And it's not even that I'm saying anything about, you know, the pork industry. I I don't, you know, have some strong position that I'm taking, asking people to make that change. I really think the animals kind of speak for themselves when you get to know them. Just like you're saying, you connected with this lamb in the movie. And a lot of people just don't have that moment where they are open and receptive and get to really see an animal as an individual. So I just love, I mean, obviously I love fostering these animals because it's wonderful to (laughs) spend time with them and see them through to their, you know, future sanctuary or their adoptive home. But a a huge part of what I like about it is that it just kind of puts these animals in front of people as individuals in a way that's not casting judgment on anybody. It's just saying here, you know, here's this individual and their story speaks for itself, you know. 
It's so true. At a couple different animal events that I've been to over the years, there have been individuals, like an individual who has a adopted pig and the pig will be in a harness and walking down the street just like a dog. And you're just not used to seeing that around. Like no one has seen that. The only vision that we have of pigs is like old McDonald's farm or, you know, whatever we have in our heads from stories people have told us. Many people have never even met a pig. And I always thought like, man, if if pigs were just walking down the street like dogs and people could just meet them and see that they're just as incredible. Sure. <laughs> um, and uh, like it would, it would shock people and it would give so many people that moment of connection being like, whoa, I cannot believe like, why am I... Why am I loving this dog and eating this pig? Sure. Yeah, I absolutely I, agree with that. You mentioned that you've heard from people who've been inspired by watching you foster pigs. And I'm really curious about that. And I wanna I wanna dig deeper there. But I think first I'd like to talk about how you got involved in animal rescue and if you've always worked with cats specifically before these recent three years and how your love of cats developed. You know, like I said, I was really interested in farm animal advocacy from a young age through being a teenager, but I was not a cat lady. Like I didn't have a cat. And then when I was 21, I found a kitten in a tree in Philadelphia. And a lot of things changed for me through that experience. I learned very quickly that kittens, um, especially at this time, this was 13 years ago, 13 and a half years ago, I, I learned that kittens really did not have good outcomes in animal shelters. I learned that there really were not programs designed to save the lives of neonatal kittens. And so I sort of became the person that people would call when they found a kitten. That's just the way it goes in rescue. It's like you find one kitten and then you find another kitten and then someone else finds a kitten and calls you and then they give your number to someone else. And like pretty soon I was the neighborhood kitten lady. And that's how I got my nickname, Kitten Lady, because I was not necessarily working with adult cats. Like I didn't have experience with adult cats. And honestly, still when people say, oh, you're a cat expert, I'm like, well, I work with kittens, you know, I, I focus on kittens, I run a kitten rescue, I create resources to teach people how to care for kittens. And when I say kitten, I mean, like, young, like newborn, orphaned, neonatal kittens is the population that I focus on. And yeah, my passion for that just started because it was right in front of my face. And I was looking for resources, and there were none. And so, you know, I've always believed the best thing you can do in life is like find a problem that nobody else has solved yet and work as hard as you can to try to solve it, you know, and, and that just became really a passion for me. I started helping kittens around Philadelphia. Then I got involved in like the shelter system and, and that was incredibly just painful to learn, you know, over a decade ago, what things were like for, for kittens. I moved to the South and there were a lot of, there was just a it was just a really, really hard time um, for kittens in the South 10 years ago. I've seen a lot of great changes over the last decade, and I'm really proud to have been played any part in any of that. But yeah, it it kind of just became my thing was working with neonatal kittens. And then about six years ago, I founded 
Orphan Kitten Club, which is my nonprofit. And we, you know, raise neonatal kittens who are mostly, you know, found outdoors by well-meaning people who pick them up and bring them to the shelter and don't necessarily realize that animal shelters are not set up to take care of orphaned kittens. So that's what we do. We have a lot of programs, great programs that are, you know, both local here in San Diego and national in scope. But yeah, I I would say I do care for cats. I have four cats of my own, but I really care for neonatal kittens is what I do. When you started loving animals at a really early age, did you feel called to be a vet instead? I know that that's something that's common for little little kids and and young young adults even when they feel this strong love for animals. That's usually the direction that comes to mind. Is that something that you considered? You know, I, I think a lot of people assume that that is, well, let me say this. I think that for young people, they don't necessarily know how many options there are in animal welfare. And so it's kind of like, you know, you can be, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be a teacher, you can be a vet, you know, and it's, these are the simple things that kids learn. And if you like animals, you'd be a vet, but veterinarians play a very important role in the lives of animals, but that is just one track of many different types of careers that you can have in animal welfare. For me, people still ask me, do you ever consider going to vet school? And I'm like, I have way too much going on to consider that. And math is not a thing that I'm particularly interested in. It's a ton of math. Um, And I'm so grateful that other people are doing that. But I excel at other things, you know, I mean, I, I'm running an organization, I'm writing books, I really like the creative side of things, I really like collaborating with veterinarians. But I don't aspire to be a veterinarian, I aspire to find great veterinarians to to collaborate with, you know, as a kid, I think that I didn't know that animal welfare was an option, um, like a realistic option for me. So I actually went to school for psychology and women's studies. And I worked with children for the first four years out of college until getting opportunities in animal welfare and made that career switch then. But um, I think it is very important for people to know, you know, if you are interested in animal welfare, veterinarians are not the only people with careers in animal welfare. You know, you can be a shelter employee, you can be shelter administrator, you can be a cat behaviorist, you can be an animal photographer, you know, there's so many different things you can do. You can be an educator. I mean, that's what I do is is humane education and um, teaching, teaching people I love that. about animals. Yeah. It's also, I followed the veterinarian path through partway through college, just because I assumed that was the only way I could professionally help animals. And it is so competitive, which means that there are more than enough people who want to, to follow the path of being veterinarian to the point where vet schools are full and it's really hard to get into them. And a lot of people don't make it. Well, whether we have enough vets or not, that's one thing. But we, ha- we have enough people filling the slots and eager to be veterinarians. And it is so important for people to realize how many other paths that there are. I was just blown away. Like when, as I tried to shift away from 
being veterinarian, the path of being veterinarian, and then realizing that there are so many other paths that are so much more aligned with like the gifts that I have that I can give and my strengths that can help vastly more animals. So I love the education route that you've taken. And now you've been able to help, I mean, millions, billions. I mean, it's so (laughs) crazy, the numbers, and we'll talk about this soon, but the staggering numbers of cats that have kittens and how that grows fast. And so to impact cats, you can impact a lot of them, but then to impact other people who can then take action on behalf of cats, it's just staggering how much of an impact you can make. So yeah, Yeah, I really (laughs) agree with that. And like, to your point, using the gifts you have, using the interests you have to help animals is the only way that animal welfare can innovate, you know? Um, I mean, if, if everybody is taking a path that has sort of already been paved, then we're not changing the world. We're not changing what is possible. So I love that now a lot more, a lot of people feel more empowered to have non-traditional paths that they're taking. And mine is definitely, I mean, my career is very difficult to explain to people. Whenever somebody asks like, what do you do? Sometimes I'll just say, oh, I'm an author (laughs) or like I'm an educator. But you know, you can become a subject matter expert in one particular area of interest that you have. And for me, that's neonatal kittens. Um, But gosh, there's so many problems in the world to solve. And yeah, if you have a passion and an interest in that, then like, please like get to solving it. It's, it's so beautiful when people can kind of create the path for themselves. I would love to start diving into the overall picture of cats in our world. And a big part of that is, I mean, you can call it the overpopulation crisis, or I don't know what the today terms for these things are. But back when I was deep into animal advocacy work. I mean, there are so many kittens being born into the world and not nearly enough homes. And so many that enter shelters don't make it back out. So can you give us like an overlay picture of what this situation is looking like and how dire and why it's so important to take action? Sure. Thank you. That's a great question. Well, in the United States, it's important to understand that we have a massive volume of community cats Community cats are free roaming unowned cats who live in our neighborhoods. And these cats are responsible for the vast majority of kittens that are born every year. So we see hundreds of thousands of cats and kittens entering shelters every year and not making it out. And unfortunately, a large majority of that is kittens under eight weeks old. So this is very surprising to people and it's a very complicated situation that I'll try to summarize as comprehensively as possible. So kittens under eight weeks old are not adoptable in the United States and kittens under four or five weeks old are entirely dependent on their mother for survival. So these kittens, when they enter animal shelters, are not going to find there are a ton of resources for them unless there are foster parents available. Foster parents are people like me and you, just everyday people who sign up with their local shelter to say, hey, I'm willing to take in an animal temporarily and provide them with care. Um, Without that, there really is no positive outcome possible for these little babies who are entering shelters, particularly if they are dependent on a mother and they they have been separated from her. 
that is a huge, huge portion of euthanasia in the United States, unfortunately, is neonatal kittens who have become separated from their mothers. The way that that happens is that people find these kittens outside and a lot of the time assume that that kitten has been abandoned. So people find them outside, say, oh my gosh, this kitten has been abandoned. How sad. I'm going to do a nice thing and bring them to the animal shelter. What's happening often there is that, you know, you're taking a kitten away from a situation where their mom is right around the corner. So you've taken them away from their mom, brought them to a shelter where they may or may not have enough foster parents for that kitten. It's a really challenging thing. And there are there's the solution to this is sort of two-prong. Of course, at the animal shelter, we need more foster parents. That is just, no one is going to disagree with that. It, there are not enough foster homes to support the numbers of kittens who are coming into shelters. And so you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to have a single moment of experience in your life with kittens to sign up to foster kittens. This is what I do. I help create resources to teach people how to do that. So if you have compassion in your heart for this issue, all you have to do is go to your local shelter, sign up to foster kittens. You can find all of my resources, videos, books, written articles. I have lots of information, webinars about how to take care of kittens. So that's one prong. But the prong that is less talked about and I think is even more important for people to understand is the importance of sterilization programs for community cats. You know, everybody knows, I hope everybody listening to this knows that the responsible thing to do when you adopt a cat or a dog is to have them spayed and neutered because of course we don't want to be contributing to the numbers, you know, the the population of these animals who already cannot access enough homes and resources. But what people don't realize is that most kittens are not coming from people's homes, people's personal cats. Some do, but most kittens, 80% of kittens born every year in the United States are born outdoors to community cats. So it's a huge, huge, huge problem. And unfortunately, there is a real lack of emphasis on sterilizing these outdoor populations. I think a lot of people feel that, well, I did my part with my cat. Why do I need to get active in helping this cat that lives in my neighborhood? I don't even know that cat. But really, if you're an animal lover, I think it is all of our responsibilities to help the animals in our communities. So if you live in a neighborhood where you see that there are cats outside and you're an animal lover, I think you know it is a very important and compassionate thing to do to look up low-cost sterilization programs in your community, see if there are trap-neuter return organizations or programs that you can utilize and get out there. It's it's fun. It's pretty straightforward. You go out there and um, I have videos about how to do it, but there are humane traps that we use. We catch the cat, bring them in for sterilization. They recover and they go back better off than they were before. They have a vaccine. They are spayed or neutered. Um, they are ear tipped, which is a really important way of identifying that the cat has been through the program. And the beauty of that program is that we don't have kittens being born in the bushes and under the porches and in the alleyways and all of that. You know, we're able to put a stop to that in that community. So 
yes, it is really sad. The volumes of kittens coming into shelters every year and their vulnerability in shelters and the lack of foster parents, that is a huge problem. But we are never going to foster our way out of this crisis. You know, we have to, we have to do both. We have to be fostering and then we also have to be sterilizing those outdoor populations so that we can put a stop to the problem, you know, exactly where it is. I remember when I first heard a statistic about the impact of one unspayed cat. I think it was maybe a piece of PETA literature and it shows like the one cat and then, you know, eight months later, that's 12 cats. And then 16 months later, that's 36 cats. And then nine years later, it can be like 11 million kittens from one (laughs) unspayed cat. Is that real? Like, are those, do those numbers play out? And I just feel like if there was more education about that, we'd realize the impact of going through that process of of spaying a community cat or spaying or neutering, the impact that it can have and why relatively small number of people taking action can have such a big outcome and results. Sure. I know exactly the the types of charts that you're talking about. I think, you know, it's natural for organizations and advocates to want to create these like very graphic visual charts like that, that I think do make a good point. I think the reality is always more complicated than a chart. And I'll I'll say, you know, there is no perfect math to the impact of an unspayed cat because it is actually probably far more grim than what you can put in a graphic design. For instance, you know, kitten mortality on the street is incredibly high. So not only are they giving birth to kittens, but a lot of those kittens are suffering and dying on the street before they ever make it into an animal shelter. The impact on the mother cat is also horrific. Um, They can have uterine infections from prolonged, just um, having litter after litter after litter. You know, they can really, really suffer as a result of us not intervening. And, um, you know, though only the kittens who are strong enough to survive in whatever the outdoor conditions are, do survive to be that next generation on that little, you know, pyramid chart that you're talking about. And so, yeah, I mean, it is, it is untold suffering for sure. And as the person who's kind of like, in the middle, like grabbing at these babies, like taking them in and and trying to, you know, intervene. It is so heartbreaking because with my nonprofit, the kittens we take in, we typically don't intake anybody who's older than two weeks old um, because we really try to focus our expertise where we are most needed. And that those are the kittens that are the hardest to find foster homes for. So we work with local shelters and we take in, you know, those really, really small, sometimes preemie babies, kittens with medical conditions, kittens in critical condition. And it just breaks my heart because yes, I can sit here and pour my resources and time and love into these babies. And that is absolutely valuable and something I will do, you know, from now till the rest of my life. But, you know, this is so preventable. Like a lot of this is so preventable. And that's why... My nonprofit, Orphan Kitten Club, we started a program a few years ago called the Full Circle Program. And what we do is rather than just take in these babies and say, okay, we did our part, what we do is every single kitten we take in, we require that in order for a kitten to come to us, that we also are given the address where they were found. So we have a full 
team of our full circle volunteers who, once we get the address where a kitten was found, our volunteers go out into that community and we, you know, do an assessment of that area because where there are kittens, there are unsterilized cats. That's just a fact. And oftentimes these are communities, these are not communities of people who hate animals or don't want to help. It's just that people don't, you know, know what the resources are, don't know how to help. And so we go into those communities, we knock on doors, we talk to people and we, you know, basically go through and sterilize the animals in that neighborhood so that this doesn't happen in that neighborhood again. That's why we call it the full circle program, because we're kind of trying to really close that loop permanently in the areas where our kittens were born. And I think, you know, we were talking before about if, if people could only see, like if people could only get to know a pig, they would understand, you know, I think if people could only see where these kittens are coming from, it would be very eye opening for them because we get a little orange kitten who's, you know, like in critical shape and we, you know, we shine them up and make them healthy and get them a home. But we go to that address where they're from and there's like 30 orange cats there. And it's like, well, yeah, this is where they're from. Obviously, this is what we should be doing. Because if we don't, we're just going to be rescuing kittens from the same neighborhood over and over and over again, which is not a good use of anybody's time, resources, donation, money, you know. So I think it's twofold. And that's why everything I do is is twofold. It's It's helping the kittens who are already born, but also trying to prevent further births. The work that you do is really, really wonderful. And we've spent a good amount of time talking about the importance of rescue work in the kitten world, but in, in also in general. But can you talk about what the big issue is with buying cats from Craigslist or from breeders? And for anyone who is listening who really feel strongly that they are attracted to one specific breed, can you still adopt and rescue breed-specific cats? And what's the best way of going about that? That's a great question. Well, you know, in my opinion, breeding in general, uh, even breeding just, you know, your domestic short hair cat that you found outside, hopefully it's it's clear that we do not need more kittens. You know, we love kittens. We don't need more of them. There are not enough homes to support all of the kittens being born. Breeding of any of any breed of cat is certainly a problem for that reason. But particularly the breeds that people focus on breeding and buying, a lot of them have significant problems. For instance, right now I'm fostering a Persian kitten. And these are, you know, those very flat faced cats who are purposely bred to look like that because people think that that's very cute. Being a animal advocate, I can tell you how incredibly not cute that is. These brachycephalic animals who are, you know, born to have a shortened snout have so many problems, everything from breathing and respiratory issues the kitten I have right now has a severe cleft palate. And a lot of these kittens are born with those deformities to the palate or the skull that can be life-threatening for them was certainly life-threatening for him. A lot of them are born with stenotic nares, which is where, you know, their, their nose, their, their nose is not, um, their nostrils are not big enough to give them enough air to be able to breathe comfortably. 
a lot of different cats are bred to have health problems that humans think are aesthetically cute. And I would really push anyone who is an animal lover to question themselves on whether it is it is cute to endorse the breeding and buying of an animal who has literally a health condition. Another very popular cat that people like to buy is munchkin cats. These are cats who are like bred to have shortened legs. They have so many different orthopedic problems. And it is it is horrifying to me that we're kind of in, intentionally creating these suffering animals because people think that they're cute. I would really encourage people to to think about that and to think about the well-being of the animal, not just what they look like and your aesthetic preference. As for where you can adopt these animals, if you do really feel passionately, you know, maybe you really do feel like I really want to adopt a Persian cat. Well, you can. You absolutely can. Um, you know, you can go on petfinder.com and you can search by breed. And there are unfortunately lots of, you know, Sphinx cats and Persian cats who end up in rescue because it turns out that they are very hard to care for. They are very expensive to care for. They require a level of care that a lot of people are not prepared for. So a lot of them do end up in rescues. And so you absolutely can adopt them if you know, if that is a big passion for you. But I really believe people should adopt with their heart and not with their eyes. So uh, I think always the best thing you can do is go to your local shelter and just meet who's there and see who needs you and see who you connect with. And you will fall in love with a cat if you go to your local shelter. I have no doubt about that. Maybe more than one, and then you might become your own cat lady. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I try and understand like what causes people to buy an animal rather than adopt one when just it seems so like there's literally a bazillion out there that need a home. And I think one of the things I hear often is about temperament. They just they assume that a bred a bred cat, we'll say, or a dog or animal, has just. I don't know, I've been trained or like it's been bred to be a certain temperament versus an animal that you get in a shelter. Can you speak to that a little bit? I mean, are all cats individual regardless of their breeding? Or do you have anything to share on that front? Yeah, and, and absolutely. One more thing to add to that. I hear this all the time in the dog community is that I foster pit bulls and people want puppies and want to buy puppies because they want to be the only person who has taught them. Is that the same with kittens too? Can you speak to that also? Sure. Yeah. Really interesting questions. Well, as somebody who, you know, works with animals day in and day out, I think it is so wild, the kind of like value judgments that people can make about assumptions of what animals in rescue must be like. It is just not true. For the work that I do, I raise these babies by hand. They are the most just cuddly, friendly. I mean, I don't like necessarily using the word training with them, but to the extent that you train a cat, they're well-trained, you know, they have great behavior and they are just so affectionate. And it's not like, you know, oh, they're a rescued animal. So they have they have to have this sad story and be like trembling in a corner. Like 
No, certainly the babies that I raise are not, but also cats come into, you know, adult cats come into rescue for any number of reasons. These are not all going to be animals with, you know, a behavior problem or something like that. Um, and you know, I think people need to be realistic with themselves about what they're looking for. You know, if they're looking for a cat who, well, the thing is any cat can develop a issue with uh, health or behavior, including cats who are purchased from a breeder. And I will say if you're purchasing a cat from a breeder, there's no guarantee that they, you know, were treated in a loving way there any differently than a guarantee that they were treated lovingly in the home they were in before they went to an animal shelter. All of these animals are individuals. So you just cannot paint with such a wide brush when talking about behaviors of animals based on whether they're from a breeder or from a shelter. In my experience, animals in shelters are just amazing companions. They're just fantastic companions. And I think also people are afraid to go to an animal shelter because they think it will be sad. But the good news is this day and age, it's, you know, most animal shelters are pretty lovely places to go inside and, and things are getting better for animals, but we still need people to be going and adopting and, you know, meeting these animals and falling in love. To your point, Tony, about people wanting to adopt only like a younger animal, I think that that can absolutely be true, you know, and to be clear, when I say I foster kittens, I don't, you know, I take in the kittens that are the ones that absolutely nobody wants to deal with. But by the time they're adoptable, yeah, they are like, some of the most adoptable animals out there is an eight week old kitten, everybody's interested in that. It is harder to find homes for adult animals, you know, I'm fostering a mama cat right now. And we don't get the same amount of applications for a mama cat that we do for her babies. And I think that that's really unfortunate. It's important for people to remember, you know, these babies will grow up very fast and they will soon be an adult. <laughs> so falling in love with an animal regardless of their age is really the important thing, I think, you know, meeting each animal as an individual, seeing who you fall in love with. And I think everything we're talking about really comes down to being open, like being open-minded, having an open heart and seeing who needs you. Because if you go to an animal shelter and you have in mind, I only want like a cat with white hair and blue eyes and they have to be a boy and they have to be under six months old. I mean, that's just a ridiculous way to meet your new best friend, right? <laughs> you know, the best way to meet your new best friend is just to kind of let that happen. And, you know, you go there and you see who you connect with genuinely. And you might be surprised. Maybe you go there with one thing in mind and you leave with an entirely different, you know, maybe you leave with two adult bonded tabby cats and they could be your best friends for the next 10 years, you know? So keeping an open heart is just so important. And I also feel like being realistic in what you can handle. I think that sometimes things sound nice, like having a, a cute little kitten or a cute little puppy, but there are an immense amount of work. And so sometimes if you are a busy professional, having an adult cat who is litter trained and who you know what to expect a little more from already, because maybe their foster family can give you some insight onto what they like and who they are, they might be better suited as a housemate 
and as a, an animal companion than a kitten who requires a lot of attention. And I think that puppies are the cutest and we actually foster quite a bit of puppies, but oh my gosh, they are so much work. <laughs> I sometimes want to cry because they pee everywhere and they eat your shoes and all, all this other stuff. And so um, I know that that's not for me realistically long-term. And I think before going in and making an impulsive decision based on who is the cutest, doing some deep thinking about what you can realistically handle and handle long-term. Because when I adopted my first cat, or my only cat, when I was 20, I didn't think, what am I going to be doing when I'm 30? And where will I want to live between 20 and 30? And how easy will that be? And how how much will I travel? And all of those other things. So those are my two thoughts. My two. Yeah. My two you know what, Tony, what you say about puppies is so right. We also foster puppies and it always seems like a good idea. And then like a week or two in, we're like, oh my gosh, puppies are so much work. They will turn your life on end and they're, they're very cute. It is true. But I'm always very happy when my puppies get adopted. I'm like, okay, you're somebody else's problem. Now. Yes. Same. Uh, Hannah, we are running short on time, but we do have a couple questions that we'd like you to answer in brief. Declawing, what's the issue? So declawing is an incredibly outdated practice that's illegal in almost every country except for the United States somehow. Declawing is where a veterinarian will surgically remove part of the digits of the cat's paw. And it's an incredibly invasive, painful procedure. If you can picture cutting your finger at the first knuckle, that's basically what they do. The problem with declawing is that, you know, cats need their claws. It's an essential part of their body that they use for everything from stretching to scent marking to self-defense. And without that, they can have a lot of problems, emotional problems. You know, obviously they can't protect themselves. A lot of them develop arthritis and pain and discomfort a lot of unwanted biting behaviors because they are not able to use their claws and a lot of litter box behaviors. So when you see, uh, you know, declawed cats in shelters, the majority of the time it's because of litter box problems. So there's a big push to legislate against declawing at the state level. There are a few states in which it is illegal now, but unfortunately nationwide, it is still a practice that's done, but anybody who's an animal lover should know this is just an incredibly horrific mutilation of an animal that is just, it should not be done. Whew, it gives me the heebie-jeebies to think about getting mm -hmm. your knuckle cut off. I have a question about shelters. So I remember when I, like there's a big no-kill shelter movement. But I remember the first time that I kind of was presented with the idea that it's really closed admission shelters and open admission shelters. And by putting the words no-kill on the label, they get a lot of the donations and everyone wants to support no-kill shelters because it sounds good. But the reality is that there's just so many cats they have to go somewhere. Then they go to these open admission shelters that don't close their door on them. And then they have to euthanize them. And then they lose a lot of support from people and are demonized. So do you have 
some perspective to share about that. Sure. I mean, I think you summarized it beautifully just now, Michelle. I think that a lot of people just don't know what the shelter system is and how it works. So the only thing I would add is that, you know, there are public and there are private shelters. And so a public municipal shelter receives not enough, but they do receive funding through the government and they are required contractually most of the time to take in every single animal from the municipality that they serve, regardless of whether they have the resources to do anything with them. So those are your county shelters and your city shelters that are not able to turn away an animal and say, listen, we don't have the bandwidth to take in this kitten or this senior dog or whoever it is. They have to say yes. That is why those are the organizations where euthanasia is high. So that does not mean, oh, we should never support these organizations. I mean, these are the organizations that need our support more than any. These are the organizations that really need people to sign up to volunteer, sign up to foster, bring in donations of food or blankets or toys because they are the ones that are dealing with the volume. A private shelter, so an organization that sets up as a nonprofit that's run by individuals who are not affiliated with the government, these organizations can choose to be you know, open admission or limited admission, meaning they say, okay, you know, we only take in this number of animals. And of course, they're not going to have the same volume of euthanasia because when an animal comes to them and they don't have the capacity to help them, they say, we are, we don't have the capacity to help you, you know? So the important thing to know is it's not like this one is good and this one is bad. They both work together. It's incredibly important to have both of these types of organizations, you know, we need both, but both also need support. And in terms of volume of support needed, uh, the greater volume of support needed is always going to be where the greater volume of animals are, which is going to be at your open admission shelters. So yeah, it's, it's incredibly challenging linguistically to help people understand that. Cause of course, why would anybody know how these things run? <laughs> but that is how they run. And it's so important to support all. Last question is, earlier you mentioned that there are a lot of well-intentioned people who see kittens or a kitten and feel like they should save them and take them to a shelter. Instead, what should people be doing? What's the best approach when you are at the grocery store and you see a litter of kittens in the parking lot on the side? Sure. Great question. You know, I mentioned earlier that uh, trying to simplify things into a chart doesn't usually capture the full picture. And that's unfortunately the same answer here. What you should do really depends on the situation. So I actually came up with a method for trying to help people make these decisions. And it's called the CASA method, C-A-S-A. And it's basically asking yourself four questions. C is condition. So what condition is this animal in? You know, if you find a kitten outside and they are in really bad condition, maybe they are covered in larva, maybe they are lethargic, maybe they are with a litter mate who has already passed away. These kittens who are in bad condition are kittens that we want to intervene with right away. If you find a kitten outside and they are clean and they're chunky and they are they look really healthy and well fed, that kitten has a mom. 
you know, they, they look like a chunky little potato because someone is taking care of them. So this is a less urgent situation. The A in CASA is age. So, you know, the age does play a role in what you do. If that kitten is under five weeks, you know, they look like they're not at an age where they can eat on their own yet. Then it's more important we keep them with mom if they are in good condition. The S is for the situation. So, you know, if you find them in the middle of the highway, yeah, you want to help them. If you find them in an area that's quite safe, you might have a little more time to try to get your resources together and figure out what to do. And the the second A is ability. So your ability and the ability of your community. You know, ask yourself, do I personally have space to take this animal in and take responsibility for them? Or if not, does my community have the ability to do that? You know, is it the middle of kitten season and the shelter is already overwhelmed? Maybe not the greatest time to pick up this kitten unless it is truly an urgent situation. So those are the factors I look at when trying to help people determine what to do if they find a kitten. But the big, big picture here is, you know, Take those kittens who really are in critical, urgent need. And yes, those kittens can go to the shelter. If they are not in critical, urgent need, then let's you know try to get them the best resources we can, whether that's you know going home with you or finding a program that can help them once they're a little bit older. And then most, most, most importantly, sterilizing the mom. You know, really, if you find kittens and they're in good condition and you know, you want to make a plan for them, I would be looking at getting the entire family together, you know, get the kittens and get the mom. Kittens can be, you know, socialized and uh, vaccinated and get their sterilization and get their adoptive home. And then, you know, if the mama is friendly, then that's an outcome for her too. If mama is unfriendly, not really interested in being, you know, a cat in someone's home, And then at least let's get her sterilized so that you're not in that same position again in just a couple more months. I so appreciate the wealth of knowledge you have on this topic and how you make it so easy when you share it for the someone like me who knows so little about cats to understand how we can plug in and make a little bit of a difference. So thank you for that. I want to ask you one last question that I feel like I can't not ask you because it's one of the most common questions I get about cats. And as a plant-based podcast, we have to ask, how do you respond to people who ask, can my cat be vegan? Can cats be vegan? Oh, man. I Nobody's asked me that in a long time. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. No, cats cannot be vegan. Cats have a biological need for all of the nutrients that are present in meat. And my response to that is, yes, it's incredibly complicated. If you are not willing to feed any animal a species-specific diet, then you probably should not be responsible for the care of that animal. Cats did not choose to domesticate themselves. Domestication is an incredibly complicated topic that we could do a whole hour on (laughs) just that. But, you know, I I really believe that it's important for us to, if we are taking in an animal and we're animal lovers and we care about the animals we're taking in, that we are feeding them what they need to be able to thrive. I don't personally see a lot of people doing that, but I have heard many horror stories of cats who are in just incredibly, incredibly bad condition or who perish because they are not being fed something appropriate for them. And 
to that point as well, you know, I take care of neonatal orphaned animals. So these are babies who require formula that has, you know, it does have some dairy products in it. And while that is like an industry I would never support for my own diet, unfortunately, you know, we're in this, I, I see myself as being kind of in the middle of of many complicated things and just trying to do the best that I can with the resources that I have. These babies thrive when they have formula and as adults, they thrive when they have, you know, food that is nutritious for them. I used to work with big cats. Uh, I used to do animal care with big cats in a sanctuary. And I remember that we would have donated dead animals, deer, chickens that came to us. And I felt very, very complicated about it at first. I thought, this is so horrific. You know, people are bringing us deer and we're feeding them to these animals. But the the truth is those big cats did not ask to be there. Many of them were from the circus or from entertainment industry, horrific practices, and they require a diet of meat. The deer did not ask to be put in these horrible situations where they were hunted or hit by cars and then, you know, brought to our place. But there I am, a vegan animal caregiver standing in the middle of it. And what can I do? The best thing I can do is feed that animal to the, you know, feed that deceased deer to the big cat and, you know, try to to make the most sense out of it that I can. And I would never pretend that domestication is simple or that wildlife in captivity is simple. These are really complicated ethical situations. But so long as you are tasked with caring for an animal, I think it's very important to meet their dietary needs because they they have no choice but you. They, they can't go out and get food that is nutritious for them. They're dependent completely on you, you know? So we all just have to do the best we can for the individuals in our care. I completely agree with you. Thank you for sharing that and going there and the- We live in a very complicated world and Tony and I talk so often on this podcast about how there's no such thing as a perfect vegan. But I will say there are many, many, many loud and proud vegans who rescue and adopt cats. And that is a beautiful path. And if it's not something you're comfortable with, you can adopt bunnies that are herbivores or dogs that are not obligate carnivores. They're omnivores like us, so they can thrive on a plant-based diet. But yes, this was amazing. I learned so much. We're going to link up all of your resources, your website, your incredible, fun, adorable books that people need to check out. Where is the best place that people can find you and connect with you on social media and beyond? Well, thank you so much. I have had a really great time too. And if people want to follow along with me, I am Kitten Lady on Facebook. I'm Kitten X Lady on Instagram. And you can find my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash kitten lady. And then all of these things you'll find links to at kittenlady.org with lots of webinars, articles, videos, everything you could ever want to learn about kittens. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for dedicating your life. Thank you.
We also want to give one last reminder to check out our sponsors of this episode, Caraway Home and Organifi. You can find Caraway Home's products at carawayhome.com and use our code PLANTPOWEREDKITCHEN to get 10% off your order. And you can check out everything Organifi has going on at organifi.com and use our special code PLANTPOWER to get 20% off. Hannah is so incredible. She does a massive amount of work. And I also love her down-to-earth approach. It's so realistic. And also the actionable items seem like anybody can do them. I feel like I can do them. Michelle can do them. And hopefully you feel inspired to make some changes too, whether that's donating to rescue or fostering yourself. There are a lot of ways to help animals and you can check out her amazing resources to figure out what way is best for you. We're going to link everything. She's got a lot of books and videos, webinars, and tons of information on her website. So check out the show notes at plantpoweredpodcast.com. Her books are super adorable too. You've got to take a look. Her newest book, Captivity Book. It's got coloring, crafts, activities for cat lovers of all ages. It just looks so sweet and adorable. And the illustrations are magical. She has one that shows a little pig and a kitty playing. So definitely check out her books. We will link those as well. And thank you all for listening. We usually end the show asking for your support of the show and leave us a review or to support us through Patreon. But today I would love to ask you to make a donation to your local shelter. We would so love it if our listeners, whether it's $5 or $100, or you want to volunteer or sign up as a foster parent, can do something wherever we are, where you're listening from all around the world to actually make a difference on this impact on this issue and and be there for the kitties and all the animals so please support your shelters thank you so much for listening and we will talk to you in the next episode bye bye